back in my grip And I'm leaving today Cause I'm taking a trip California way this week, live from Paris, France, it's a special episode of the Pietist Schoolman podcast. Alright, welcome back to, I guess, season four of the Pietist Schoolman podcast. Yeah. This is Chris Garrett with Sam Mulberry. And we are sitting in a kind of echoey bedroom in a hostel in Paris, France. That's right. Um, and so what are we doing here? Well, uh, Sam and I, every other year, lead a travel course for Bethel University on World War One, with a little bit of World War Two and the Holocaust tucked in. So we're about two-thirds of the way through the trip, about to leave from Paris to head to Munich, Germany, to wrap things up. But we just finished uh, our battlefield tour and thought it might be worth sharing some reflection. So this is a continuation of season four of the PSP, uh, in which we did kind of a travelogue. We talked through this trip before we left and as you might remember, we're also doing an adult version of this trip in June. So uh, for London, for the Western Front, Ypres the Somme, for Paris and for Munich, we had shared our favorite meal, our favorite masterpiece, our favorite memorial, and our favorite museum for each of those cities. But there's one place we couldn't preview. But there's one place we couldn't preview because we hadn't been there yet. And in a, in a weird sense, our theme music for this week is a, is a hint of that. I, I know Bing Crosby seems like an odd choice for the Pietist Schoolman podcast, uh, but that is San Fernando Valley, written by Gordon Jenkins, sung by Bing Crosby with John Scott Trotter and his orchestra. A really fine orchestra. It sounds say. like it, yeah. So, I mean, we're taking a trip, not California way, but Europe way, but the actual reason we picked that is because on June 6, 1944, San Fernando Valley by Bing Crosby was the number one song in the United States, and of course... That is D-Day, the beginning of Operation Overlord, the uh, Second Front, the invasion of Normandy, the liberation of Europe. And so what we had done this trip was to say, we are interested in how World War I connects to World War II, and also maybe we can take a day away from our Paris day and add a journey to Normandy, and to go to some beaches, see some sites, go to a cemetery, stay the night. And our wonderful Belgian tour guide, Carl Oak, was nice enough to do it, and clearly had done this before. And um, I had never been to Normandy. Sam, you'd never I had been never Normandy. been to Normandy, no. I mean, I think we had seen pop culture visions of it sure. many times, read a lot about it. And so I think it's still with us. And I think for students, it was a really transformative part of the trip. I think in many ways, it's actually helped us rethink of the story of World War One to see it from a different perspective. Right. I would say it was, I mean, it was a transformative part of the trip, but it was also transformative of the trip. Yes. Like, it transformed the trip. It's a different way to understand this. Yeah, I think when we first did it, I mean, it almost felt like, I mean, we're tacking this on because we're so close, students will like it. Um, you know, World War Two is a sequel to World War One. It's actually, as we thought about it, it changed how we told the story because mm -hmm. we had long bus rides. So, um, and Carl actually lost his voice partway through, so I got to kind of pick up and tell the story of how World War One ended, planted seeds for World War Two. But then, actually being there, you start thinking. Well, we'll talk more about it. But like, there are certain sites you hear kind of echoes of, but mm -hmm. they're also very different sites. Um, you respond emotionally differently, and it caused our students to kind of rethink their response to World War One. If you actually go to the History Department blog for Bethel, bethelhistory.wordpress.com, we've been sharing a few student responses as a kind of trip journal. And uh, one of our students, Anna Solomon, who's graphic design, studio art, and maybe digital humanities, we included her response from Ypres, which is uh, one of the key battlefields of World War I. 
and then also from Normandy, and she reflected back a few days later, essentially on kind of how did I respond to World War One? Why am I responding this way to World War Two? So go there, and I think it's a really worthwhile reflection, including some of her photos. Okay, without further ado, let's now belatedly give our four M's: uh, Meal Museum masterpiece memorial for Normandy. Should we dispense with Meal first? This yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, because we weren't in we weren't in Normandy a lot in terms of seeking out meals, but. Uh, there was one meal that stood out to us. Yeah, so we stayed. Let's let's actually throw some love to our friends at the Hotel Le Bayeux. The Bayeux is a very old town. It's the home of the Bayeux Tapestry. We didn't have time to go to that museum, but I'm sure it's worth it. Saw lots of images of it, though. Yep, and a Gothic cathedral that was mostly untouched by the war, amazingly. Uh, and so we stayed at the Hotel Le Bayeux uh, and had a great time. It's a really nice stop. Um, and as usual, breakfast is included. We're, we're kind of accustomed to France having as I mean, more like what we think of as a continental breakfast, mm -hmm. whereas England, Germany tend to be pretty hearty breakfasts. But we got there, and Sam, how would you describe the repast that we... It was a spread in? that just sort of kept going. Yeah. And there were lots of things that uh, we weren't sure exactly what it was, whether it was a quiche or a tart. There were lots of things. <clears throat> but there was also hot food, so there was eggs and just a mess of bacon, mm -hmm. which was really, really good. And um, uh, I'm trying to remember what the, the other baked goods were, because there were so much... Yeah, and then you get to it, I mean, like, you kind of feel like you're done, then you get to the other room and there's, like, cheese and cold guts. Right, and, right, yeah. I mean, partly it's interesting to be in places where so much of the tourist trade is American and Canadian. They know, like, this was the nicest hotel we stayed in. Like, the bathrooms were set up for Americans. They had right. blow dryers and scales and all the amenities you would want. But they clearly thought, this is what Americans want for breakfast. And in some ways, it was really good. It's like a halfway point of the trip. It's nice to be... In our minds pampered a little bit. It also felt like I kind of wish we had like what a Norman breakfast mm -hmm. would be like. So I'll say my favorite meal is in a weird spot. We had got a meal packed by our hostel in Albert, France, which is in Picardy on the Somme, and brought it with us. And we got to Normandy in the first place. We went was a German military cemetery, and we hadn't eaten, so we kind of took this bag lunch with us, walked around. And it was very simple. It was like a candy bar and an apple and a bottle of water, mm -hmm. but it was also a baguette some butter and some cheese. And it was perfect. It is perfect. We, we've had sandwiches like this a lot. And I was talking to some students on the drive back, and they, they just can't get enough of it. There's yeah. something about the simplicity of, like, bread, butter, um, maybe ham we've had a lot, but cheese. Was just like it's just a, and it's not a lot of cheese, but, like, a good cut of cheese. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. or something. It's just, yeah, yeah it was... And I, and I also need to say, since we, we're talking more about food than we intended on yeah, this already, so. but... Um, there's something about the apples that we've had here, and they're they're more like I mean they're not apple pear hybrids, but that's what they taste like. Yeah. They're much more like a pear. They're delicious, okay. um, including the ones we had at that cemetery. Yeah. yeah, I've been very curious about that. We had some potatoes. Um, I think even in Bayou that night, we actually went to a, it was kind of an American style steakhouse that Carl wanted to visit, and it was really good. But like it was kind of American steak, but like the potatoes were very different mm -hmm. themselves too. Anyway, that's maybe a different season that's right. podcast. Let's move on to what we're actually here to talk about. Uh, Sam, I'll let you lead off. Do you want to do Museum, Masterpiece, Memorial? Uh, let's do Masterpiece. Let's just get that one, I think, uh, that one going because we've already hinted at this a little bit. So, <clears throat> for me, the, the great... So, previously, Masterpiece, we've tried to define broadly, but usually it's an artistic Masterpiece. Mm -hmm. So, a painting, a sculpture, a play, a movie, but you have something very different in mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I am a, a collector of great teachers, and I, Carl is is a wonderful storyteller. So, when we're at the, when we're at the Western Front for World War One, he 
weaves the story of the war through the things that we're visiting. Uh, but there was a moment when we were on Omaha Beach, and uh, Carl was standing there, and all the students started to kind of circle around him. And Chris and I uh, saw him grab a, a seashell, yeah. uh, bend over, and start writing in the sand on the beach. This is like low tide at Omaha Beach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, he, and what he was doing was he was drawing out a map, drawing out a map of uh, kind of the bay there um, and where the different beaches were, so where the five, uh, the five beaches uh, for the D-Day invasion were. And he kind of uh, marked all those out and then started talking through, uh, you know, which, which nations were in charge of which beach uh, and, and what the different objectives were. Mm-hmm. And then what did they do after they had reached the beaches? And it was this, like, just this brilliant piece of teaching to say, you are in this place. Let me tell you what happened here. Let me tell you why, why Omaha Beach was the most difficult beach, why Utah Beach, uh, they had uh, more things in their favor there. And 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 then and then he could so he could go from this map that was in the sand to then point out things that were in front of us and say okay do you see this here do you notice this do you notice how high the cliffs are look up there that's where a machine gun was that's where artillery I mean it was really amazing yeah it was splendid I I really we can't speak highly enough about Carl as I mentioned he got laryngitis um, and so let me also praise his substitute um, uh, another Belgian guy named Raoul get the sentence um, I forget who was a former high school teacher mm-hmm. and, and was very teacherly, but like Carl keeps talking about, well, I'm not a historian, I'm just a tour guide. Like, he's a wonderful teacher. Yes. And like, it's not even just like adapting to the circumstances. It's like, um, I mean, it's almost like you could imagine like a, you know, like a sergeant doing something like that mm-hmm. on, in the dunes, in the sand, like trying to improvise, something. like it felt very Private Ryan kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was so useful. And like, I can, I know the students understood it so much better you know, kind of where they were, how it related to, like, the two deep water ports, the Hava and Shebuah. Um, like, he talked about the airborne, because a lot of them had seen Band of Brothers, mm-hmm. and they knew where Karenstown was, and he talked about that and how that related to the D-Day land. It was, it was just splendid. Mm-hmm. Um, my masterpiece related to that is the actual landings themselves, the whole operation. And Samuel, you really picked up on this, I think, even faster than I did, but Carl did a good job explaining... It's not just the landings at like dawn on June 6th. It's everything that went into preparing it. And then it's how do you sustain that, right? It's like I think we have a basic sense if you're a casual sort of buff of World War II of like they had to grab a foothold, right? And that, that, that's the beginning of the second front. And from there it's to Paris. What you, what you don't think about is the logistics, which is a recurring theme of Carl for World War One, and then for World War Two is you've got to feed all those soldiers, and you've got to get fuel to them, and they're lightly armed. So you also had to get artillery and tanks, mechanized, uh, um, all, all the mechanization of World War Two, and so we talked a lot about how that happened, and especially how the British and Americans constructed these temporary harbors. Uh, in a couple of spots. Um, so the one at Omaha was destroyed, there's nothing left of it, but the British had one at, I think, Gold Beach, mm-hmm. kind of in the center of this whole array, um, outside a little town called Hermanche de Bar. We'll actually talk more about those, uh, what's actually called the Mulberry Harbor, mm-hmm. uh, Fort Churchill, but I mean, you kind of give you a sense of like what it takes to do this, and like, and you kind of step back and it's just it's dazzling that this worked, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it shouldn't have. Like, it feels very providential. Like, I actually, yeah. I'm not prone to that kind of thinking. Thinking, but I, I mean, I can see why, like, soldiers in the moment felt like that. That yeah. 
how else could this have come together given the weather, the topography, the Germans responding to it? Well, and, and you know, I imagine, as, and we, you know, encourage our students to do sort of uh, kind of imaginative empathy. Like I imagine being a soldier, and you would, ha it had to be an act of faith because if you, even though we have, you know, the the hindsight of history to say, well, we know that this worked. When I listen, just look at the plan, I think I don't know that it's worth. That, that it would be worth putting all these lives at risk. And Carl even talked about this moment when Eisenhower partway in thought, maybe we pull everybody back. Yeah. And like, and I can imagine just that, the sense of knowing the destruction of, you know, the sort of frontal assaults in World War I thing. Are we just sending all these people off to die on this beach for nothing? Yeah, in London, in Whitehall, I pointed to a statue of Bernard Law Montgomery, the British general who was part of this landing, right? And Americans, I mentioned Americans sometimes are dismissive. I mean, it's partly how he's portrayed in movies like Patton, as this mm -hmm. pre-Madonna. He's also sometimes portrayed as indecisive, tentative. Um, but I remember reading the British journalist Max Hastings saying the reason that Montgomery behaved that way is, A, he had fought at the Western Front, right? He remembered what that war was like. And B, he had a very strong sense that these were citizen soldiers, that he was fighting for a democracy, and you can't just waste the lives of citizens in the same way you can use professional soldiers. So yeah, that, that kind of came back to me, because I'm sure Eisenhower felt the same sort of thing. Is like, we've got to win this war, and yet we can't just, for futility or hubris, cost tens of thousands of lives. Now, the segue is well to our next thing, which is to say that 10,000 some Americans did die, which mm -hmm. is dwarfed by all the battles of the Eastern Front of World War II, most of the battles of the Western Front of World War I. Carl pointed out that there are 160,000 some Americans involved in the Normandy landings. That's like a fifth of what were involved just in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in 1918 and World War I. Um, but a lot do die. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment on the beaches where I kind of turned out to sea and I just looked out. I mean, I thought a lot of them died. Things were sunk. They drowned, right? Um, and that's mostly why there are a lot of actually unidentified soldiers when you go to the American military cemetery. Mm -hmm. And so that takes us to, I think we're going to call this museum. I'll call this a museum. Because mm -hmm. um, the whole thing is very emotional. And like much of this trip is emotional, but maybe especially so. Like I... I I don't have relatives who fought at D-Day. I've got, I think, a great uncle who was later part of the liberation of France. But um, I, I did think a lot about the just like courage and terror that must have mixed in doing this seemingly impossible thing, especially at Omaha Beach. And some of those soldiers didn't make it. There were, I think, four or 5,000 buried at this one cemetery. And, and so it was kind of the end of the day, so we had to move through more quickly than we wanted to. But in addition to the cemetery itself, the, um, the, the role of honor, the screen of the unidentified dead, the memorial, there's a sculpture. They also do a very nice job. There's a museum. So mm -hmm. you walk in, you go downstairs, you watch a 20-minute film that I thought was very well done that told the story of a few of those soldiers. And then there's this really nice display kind of walking you through all the preparations kind of at a big macro level, but then also you have these nice stories of not just Americans, but like French resistors, the British who are part of this. Um, and so I'm looking forward to coming back in June. It's it's open later. We might get there earlier and being lingering there. Well, and there's actually, there, there's an interesting part in that, in that museum. And we, one of the things that we've talked about is how do you do memorials? And we, and um, at the Imperial War Museum, there was a thing about uh, digital memorials. Mm -hmm. And I, don't, I, I assume you caught this, but as you walk into that last circle before you got to the cemetery, there is just an unending reading of names. Yeah. 
and like that's actually really just the thought that that go that that I think about the uh, the the thing you see on the um, in the World War One cemeteries, their names liveth forevermore. Right. And there's something to I want to believe, but even when they lock the doors, those names just keep being going. read, and it just goes on forever. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of eternal flame. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oral instead of visual. Yeah, I, I thought it was. I mean, we've seen a lot of military cemeteries, including the German one I mentioned, and for a lot of the reasons, this one hit pretty hard. Yeah. I felt like, and it also did a good job as an educational place. As yeah, well. I would say I would say um, uh, just to so add one little tack on to this. Um, I've been to World War One American cemeteries and felt less moved than I did at places like Essex Farm and Langemark and Tynecott, you know, these big World War One cemeteries. For me, Langemark, the German World War One cemetery, is one of the most haunted moving places in the world. Now what's interesting is when we went to the German World War II cemeteries, it echoes Langemark mm-hmm. in terms of its iconography, mm-hmm. in terms of the sculptures and like volcanic rock. Like it's like a, a kind of like Langemark in lots and lots of ways. And my emotion was so different because, you know, at first I was like, oh, this, this feels familiar to me. And then I kept thinking, this is World War II. What was the German cause in World War II? You know, I kept telling myself, like, this is a, this is a Nazi cemetery. Like, it's, it's, my emotions were so different. I'm so moved at Langemark. And at that, it was, I felt so different. And that was, that was really interesting. And that came through, I think, in what, what a number of the students wrote, that they said there was something different both about the American cemetery, but also about the German cemetery. Yeah, we want to come back to that, because something we do emphasize in all of our classes, but especially in this one, is, is empathy, really. You want to identify, um, even if it's not a nationality that was on your nation's side in a particular war. Um, so Langemark, there's an inscription from Isaiah 43, um, I have called you by name and you are mine. And as it happened, we went to the American church in Paris this week, and it's uh, the baptism of Jesus Sunday. And again, the text was from Isaiah 43, and I thought about that, and he goes on to say that I will be with you, you know, through water and through fire, and I thought, you're not speaking to Germans as much as to Americans. But I had the same reaction at the Normandy Cemetery. Now, we're going to come back to this when we get to Munich, and we're going to have to wrestle with like German memory of World War II mm-hmm. and of the Holocaust. And, and like, I mean, one thing Germans have done is to say, well, the Wehrmacht was pure. The Wehrmacht was just trying to do the best under a terrible situation. They were patriotic Germans just trying to fight for their nation. But if you know anything about Holocaust studies, you know that's been deeply compromised the last 25 or so years as more evidence has come to light about the participation of the Germans in a very different part of Europe. But they were deeply bound up in a pretty wicked cause. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I, I felt the same way. And so I want to think more about that and maybe revisit it once we get to Germany itself. Last thing I'll say about museums is we didn't actually go to any of the many museums that are in Normandy, and so we can't offer you a review of, like, if you have time for one museum, like, there's one in Bayeux, but there's one seemingly in every small town. Mm -hmm. And so the main thought I've been wrestling with is, you know, as with all of the things we're doing, to different degrees, I mean, commerce is part of this as well. Like, there, there are... There are all sorts of cafes and hotels and stands and bookshops and museums that have English that say thank you. Uh, I mean, they're catering to a certain audience. They're trying to... I imagine most of these little private museums have like one or two significant artifacts tied to one little piece of this. But there was one that especially kind of... I don't know if it rubbed me the wrong way, but just made me think. Because we were further along the beaches and we were into the British or Canadian sector and it was called the American Museum of this. Mm -hmm. And it was clear
ploy to lure American tourists to a place where Americans didn't even fight just to get you there. And so I kind of, like, it makes me wish we had time to actually visit one of these, because mm-hmm. they might be very well done, but it does suggest you have to be, A, this memory is all contested, and I think you do have to be a little careful. Like, I think we have a sense of sacredness around all the things we're doing, but it's it's not pure. Right? Well, and it, I think also think it will be interesting to go there in June when potentially people are on vacation and these yep. are just these are beaches. So that's one of the questions I asked uh, Carl and Philippe, our bus driver. I said, "Well, I mean, do people because we are going to these as if this is this hallowed ground, and we're the only ones there. And we're the, yeah, we're alone on these beaches, and it looks like you're in a scene from Saving Private Ryan." And but at the same time, it's like if we're in summer, like are we just walking around like sunbathers? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it is like like this is also this. This isn't exclusively this cordoned off area that people go to mourn and to do these things. But it, it is that, and it is life. Yeah. You know, I think that, and that that echoes sort of the nature retaking the Western Front too. You know, right. like right. life continues. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our fourth end. We've kind of hinted at memorials before. Um, and we saw some things that are similar to sculptures, obelisks, arches, you know, rolls of honor that we've seen on Western Front battlefields. The memorials that stood out to me are very different. I mean, because in a sense, a memorial is any kind of object that prompts remembering, right? Mm-hmm. And the things I have in mind have been left, they've been preserved in a sense, but not designed. They weren't created later, they are ruins. So uh, a few that I'll just bring up, and Sam, you might have some others. So one of the first places we stop is Pointe du Hoc, which is uh, kind of between Utah and Omaha Beach. It's, it's uh, a point, a German position that uh, U.S. Army Rangers had to take at really great cost. They had to climb these cliffs and, and get up. Um, and, and what you see there are these German bunkers that have crumbled. There are a couple that are pretty well reserved you can climb down into, but mostly it's just like chunks of reinforced concrete. And I caught myself looking around and think I've, I've never been to Italy or Greece, but like in my peripheral vision, it felt a little bit like I'm walking through Roman ruins, right? Like this is what's left of an empire, or in this case, a Reich, right? And it's, mm-hmm. it's not as beautiful as the marble that I imagine Roman ruins or the stones, but, you know, this, this is supposed to last forever. This is part of an Atlantic wall that was supposed to repel the strongest invasion force, preserve a thousand-year Reich, and here you've got these like... Chunk, I mean, sometimes there's like chunks that collapse in on themselves. Sometimes it actually does echo like Roman forms. Like there are a couple of curved pieces that kind of look like or like a Greek um, amphitheater mm-hmm. or a Roman temple in some of these bunkers, the way they're designed. And, and it's like, I just thought of like Ozymandias or something. And you see the same thing. We go to uh, 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 Longsimer and there are German artillery mm-hmm. pieces preserved. And some of them are in good shape, but some of them like... They're corroding away. They're corroding, yeah. the like... Barrel has been hit by a naval shell or something. But then also I felt the same thing when we went to this Mulberry Harbor at Aromanche, which these were um, allied. Um, this artificial harbor made out of steel. Um, and at low tide, you can actually see it. And it's, you know, the sea has been reclaiming it. And those are ruins too. And I feel differently about those ruins, I guess, than the German ones. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, those were memorials too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, partly just reminding you of how the war was fought and how can you visualize it, but also the kind of transitory nature of power. Mm-hmm. I mean, like World War II, in many ways, is just a staggering example of human ability and ingenuity put to 
pretty terrible ends, you know, even if the cause was just. Um, and a display of monumental power that the Romans themselves never could have dreamed of. And yet here's what's left of it. And Carl even said at one moment, looking out at these mulberry harbors, you know, if I come back here in 10 years, I wonder if there'll be anything left. Like, they've just been slowly... He actually told me at one point, if you go on the sand of Normandy beaches, he had heard that a... I think he said, like... 10% of it is actually microscopic bits of all the different pieces of iron. Hmm. And the sea is just corroded down to rust and then returned and it's mixed with the sand, right? And at a certain point, all of that will be gone. Like, none of this will last forever. So that, that was, sorry, very long rambling. Like, that's the kind of memorial that stood out to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think about, I think of, and, and I'm just going to echo two things I've already mentioned, which is sort of the beaches themselves, both as memorial and living space. And then in the, the American Cemetery, I really do think I was moved by the uh, ongoing, like the ongoing kind of role, role of honor, not just um, not just names carved in a screen, but hearing it. And you know, I'm thinking, you know, if you if you had someone who was who uh, who was lost in that war, you know, you you wouldn't necessarily if you were there, even if you spent a lot of time there, you wouldn't necessarily hear their name, but you would hear names of people they knew, people mm-hmm. they met, and and so the, I I. I for some reason, I found that particularly moving, and, and and I think it's in part because my mind really is on digital memorials, and like I didn't, it didn't occur to me when I was there right away that that's what it was. But I thought, well, that actually, that was kind of great. I really liked that. It was. I, I mean, I I was glad that we added this from the start. I didn't know what to expect, but I think it's really been a highlight of the tour, and in, in in lots of ways, you know, kind of we expected in ways that we didn't. So. Well, thanks for listening to us. Hopefully you get a chance. Maybe some of you have actually been to Normandy and want to share your own thoughts. You can write to uh, livefromacsecond at gmail.com, or you can certainly find our Bethel email addresses too and, and share your thoughts. Uh, um, but thanks for listening. It's been fun to do these podcasts on site. We did one of these last week for another podcast we do called uh, Nothing Rhymes with Garrett. You can find that and this at the Live from AC Second podcast network that Sam runs. This episode was uh, produced and engineered by Sam Mulberry. Thanks for listening. Bonne journée.